We're going to look at this passage of Scripture in John 18 tonight under the title, Wicked Religion. Jesus appears before two high priests. You think one would be enough, but he has to appear before Annas and Caiaphas. Annas had been the high priest, but he had been deposed because he fell out of favor with the Roman governors. And he was replaced by his son-in-law, Caiaphas, who took on the role of the high priest. Now, some of the Jews still looked to the older Annas to be their high priest. They thought, well, the Romans have no right to decide who our high priest is. And some of them still considered him as the rightful high priest, and he still had that name from some. And behind the scenes, he still seemed to be one pulling a lot of the strings. So when Jesus was arrested, he was sent, first of all, to Annas, this older one, this former high priest, and then he was sent on to Caiaphas, the son-in-law. Now, as we look at these interactions, the first thing I want us to see here are partial truths in verse 14. We're wanting to look and see what are the aspects of religion that is evil, that is wicked. And in verse 14, we read, it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Now, that statement goes back to John chapter 11, which speaks of a discussion which the Jews had after Lazarus had been raised from the dead. They were at their wit's end because everybody was now running after Jesus. It was impossible to refute that Lazarus, who had been dead for several days, had been brought back to life. At that time, the Jewish leaders were so concerned that because the people were running after Jesus, this might destabilize things with the Roman governors and impact on their own personal positions of influence. Here we have people who liked the power and the dignity that they had within this society. And it was during that that we read this quote here from Caiaphas, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to him, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Now, here was Caiaphas, this religious man, this religious leader. He was totally wrong, totally selfish in his motives when he's speaking here, but he stumbles onto at least part of the truth, and God was even using him, even though he was this wicked man. And he declares that it would be better for the people of Israel that Jesus should die. So here we see that this wicked religion, it had some truth in it. And all religion in this world will have some measure of truth in it. All religions have good moral teachings and teaching about our responsibility towards others, which is helpful and good. Uh, false religions may even have some of the truth about the nature of God. But where false religions will go wrong is where Caiaphas is going wrong here. He was right in seeing the necessity for Jesus to die.
But where he was wrong was that he didn't see the right reason why this had to happen. He saw it appropriate that Jesus should die to smooth things over with the Romans so that Jesus wouldn't knock the status quo. And many people like that want that in life, just things to remain comfortable and easy. But that's not what Jesus had come, and that's not what, why Jesus had to die. Paul probably puts it best in Romans 3 when he says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified, that means made right with God, by His grace as a gift, through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. That word propitiation, it's only used a few times in the Bible. It's a very important word, though. It speaks of how Jesus' death was propelling away the wrath of God from His people. Now, that's not a, a popular term today. People do not want to think about the subject of the wrath of God. They don't want to think of the idea that God would be angry because people have pictured a God who's more like Santa Claus or more like a doting grandfather. They've shifted from the true God of the Bible, who is a God of love and compassion, but also the God of wrath and justice. And it's because people have moved from the biblical God in their thinking, they see no need for this talk of God's wrath. But God is a consuming fire. God is a jealous God, and God will punish all sin. And either we'll endure it upon ourselves in hell forever, or Jesus had to take it. Jesus had to take it upon Himself and propel away that wrath from His people. I've shared this before. I remember Alistair Begg speaking, I think it was actually at the time when we had our last major debate within the Presbyterian Church about ecumenical matters. And he was speaking that evening and he said, I don't want to speak about what's going on uh, here today, not half. <laughs> but what he then said was, in, in America, there's a tremendous pressure upon ecumenical, ecumenical activity. The people of different religions, not just so-called Christian religions, but Islam and Judaism and Buddhism, people from all these different religions coming together. And the argument that is made is all religions have good, and what we have in common is much more and much more important than that which divides us. And then Alistair Begg said this, he says, but what is it that divides us? It's Jesus. It's what we believe about Jesus. And isn't Jesus much more important than everything else? And if people, they claim to be religious, if, even if they claim to be Christian, if they do not accept that the only hope of salvation is that Jesus dies as a propitiation to propel away God's wrath through His sacrifice on the cross, I'm sorry. We we'll love you as neighbors, we we'll love you as friends, but we'll not call you brothers and sisters in Christ, because this is a ground we have to stand on. Partial truths are not enough. Jesus having to die is not enough. Jesus having to die for the sin of His people to propel away the wrath of God, 
that is the full truth we must hold on to. And I hope that's the truth you're holding on to here tonight. I hope you realize as you come in tonight, there's no point thinking being a good Presbyterian, being a good moral person will get you right with God. You're like the Pharisee who had the partial truth. You have to come like the tax collector. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, and realize your only hope is Jesus and what He has done. Partial truth. That's the first thing about wicked religion. The second thing is insincere investigations. We'll read here from verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about His disciples and His teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. Now, Jesus' point here is that as Annas questions him, is that his teaching has always been open. He hasn't done it in private. He hasn't done it in secret. He's done it in the synagogues. He has done it in the temple. And people knew what he stood for. They knew what he taught. He didn't hide it in any way. These questions from Annas were not about knowing the truth, not about knowing really what Jesus taught. These were questions similar to questions you would get in an interrogation cell to trip him up so that Jesus would be condemned. Annas's mind was not open, but closed to the truth. When he had met with Jesus, he had already made up his mind about Jesus, he had already rejected Jesus, and there was nothing that Jesus was going to say that would change that. Now, when we are speaking to the unsaved about Jesus, and when unsaved people raise questions about Christianity. It's important to figure out why they're asking those questions, and whether their questions are genuine, with a genuine interest to learn, or are their questions like Annas's questions here. They've already rejected Jesus, and they want to justify their position. Those can be questions about creation. People can ask questions about creation and evolution because they do want to believe, they want to have a faith in Jesus, but they're struggling with this. Or they can ask questions about creation and evolution because they don't want to believe and they want further excuses to reject Jesus. People can ask questions about suffering in this world because Possibly they've gone through suffering themselves, and that is a real struggle to them and is holding them back from committing themselves to Jesus because they're hurting by what they've gone through. Or they can be asking questions about suffering simply because they want another excuse to say no about Jesus. It's the same whether it could be about hypocrisy. One of the major things people would bring up, I, I wouldn't be a Christian because they're full of hypocrites. Well, they can be saying that because maybe they have genuinely been hurt by those who profess to be a Christian. Or they could be saying that because, again, they've made up their mind about Jesus and want any excuse to justify rejecting Him. 
The big question here is the heart. Where is the heart of the person asking the question? Is their heart a heart that is wanting to believe but is struggling? Or is it a heart that doesn't want to believe and is looking for excuses? And so, when you're talking to people, you have to realize those are the two types of people you'll meet. And for those who want to believe but are struggling, you'll be particularly tender and careful in how you speak to. For those who don't want to believe, well, you can be a wee bit more abrupt. I remember one night following an outreach in the Students' Union in Queens, and one of my friends, Andrew, was witnessing to someone, and they raised the question, well, what about all those people in the world who have never heard about Jesus? And Andrew had a fair idea where the person was coming from. They were one of those people who didn't want to believe and was looking for any excuse. Andrew's response was, oh boys, he says, you are the most loving person I have ever met. He was being particularly sarcastic. Here I am telling you that you're about to go to hell because of your sin, and all you're worried about is all those people who have never heard. There's times to be particularly gentle. There's other times to be abrupt with those who are playing games. But there's also a challenge here as we think of this insincere investigation from Annas. There's a challenge here for, for Christians about how we approach God's Word. Do we approach God's Word with open hearts and open minds to learn, to be reshaped, to develop? Or do we come to God's Word out of ritual and duty with minds that are closed and are not willing to learn or to be changed? Let me test you in this. When was the last time something changed in your life? because of something you read in your Bible reading? When is the last time you did something specifically because of something you heard in a sermon? Is God's Word changing you? When you come Sunday by Sunday, when you come to your Bible readings, in private? Are you coming with open minds and open hearts to be filled, to be changed? It's only if that is the case will your relationship with Jesus be alive. But if you just come, I'll get this out of the way. This is what Judy done for another week. This is what Judy done for another day. Your Bible reading is nothing more than a Protestant rosary. Just reading the words in order to salve your conscience. And coming to church, you might as well be going to a mosque. We can't come before Jesus that way. Realize this when you come to your Bible reading, when you come to worship, you're coming into the presence of Christ. You can't come like Annas, who came with the attitude that 
He had already made up his mind about Jesus. He was close to Jesus. He wasn't going to listen or be changed by what Jesus said. You can't come to Jesus that way. If Jesus truly is your Savior, if He is your Lord, you will say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So we've seen partial truths. We've seen insincere investigations. We see, thirdly, aggressive opposition here in verse 22. When he had said these things, that's Jesus, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is that how you answer the high priest? So Jesus has just said, listen, Annas, you could have spoken to me. You could have asked questions anytime. You know what I taught. And I realize you're playing a game now by asking these questions here. And Jesus is hit by one of those officials around him because he said that. The words of Jesus had no answer that could come from Annas. And this caused those who were normally dignified and religious to strike out now. Mark tells us what would shortly happen from these religious people as well. In Mark 14, he says, And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. Now, notice that. Who are those who were spitting on him? Who were those who covered his face and were striking him and saying, Prophesy? He hadn't been handed over to the guards of the states. These were the members of the Sanhedrin. These were the Jewish religious leaders. Do you see how angry they had towards become towards Jesus? Do you see the hatred that they have for Jesus? And what we see here is a, an outworking of the heart, which is at enmity with God. The heart that doesn't have the Spirit hates God. Jeremiah spoke of how the heart is desperately wicked and beyond cure. These people were acting in this way towards Jesus because their hearts were sinful and wicked and evil. What was being done to Jesus was a consequence of who these people were inside. I don't know if you ever watched the Narnia films if you watch ever The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe, Aslan, who is a picture of Christ in that series, in The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe, he is going to be put to death. He is going to be sacrificed because of the sin of Edmund, one of the young people. And you know, it's a very harrowing scene as he is being taken to this big stone table where he's going to be put to death. And all the forces of evil, all those who were opposed to him, it's their mockery, their jeering, their hatred of him, which shines through. That's what was happening here. I remember someone I know who was at a court case one time. It was a particularly difficult case. It was someone this person knew who was in the dock. 
Remember him saying, he says, there was such a presence of evil in that courtroom. Evil was so near. We need to remember that the evil which caused this official to strike Jesus and then caused them to hit him and to mock him and spit on him, that evil is the same evil that we are born with in our hearts. They didn't have sin on steroids. They had the same sin in their hearts that you and I are born with. And that is why if we're going to be genuine followers of Christ, the only way that this can happen is through rebirth. That nature of sin and wickedness and evil being replaced with the nature of Jesus, a nature of love and obedience. But even after rebirth, sin, which is the same as we see displayed here, something of that sin still lurks within us. William still used the picture of a, a milk bottle. Or today it'll be a, a milk carton. But if you empty the milk bottle and pour all the milk out, you look inside and you'll see the, the dregs, you'll see the drips that are still there. And he says, when we are born again, it's as if the milk has been poured out, but there's still the drips and the dregs of sin that remains there. And if those drips and dregs of sin are not dealt with, they will grow and continue to seek to take over our lives again and again. Those drips and dregs of sin need to be mortified. That's an old word the Puritans use. It means they need to be put to death. And if, if that isn't put to death, and if we're not serious about having that put to death, our Christian lives will certainly not be what they should be. And let's remember what those drips of sin are. It's the same sin that caused these people to so attack Jesus. Paul puts it this way in Romans 8. He says, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And you see, the remains of that old nature, the remains of that sin, that fleshly nature, that fallen nature, it is hostile to God. It will not submit to God's law. And even though we have the Spirit of God, even though we have the nature of Christ now living in us, there's that battle between the flesh and the Spirit. And remember, the flesh, it promises much, but it's that wickedness and evil that crucified Christ. And we can't have any truck with it. And who is going to win this battle? The battle between the flesh and the spirit. Who is going to win? Whatever we feed will win. If we feed the flesh, it will conquer us. If we feed the spirit through worship, the study of God's word and prayer and devote ourselves to it, it will win. 
But the danger is maybe we're seeking to feed the Spirit, but at the same time feed in the flesh. And the battle will be intense. Let's remember this. Holiness comes as the grace of God which delights to obey Jesus conquers the nature of the flesh that delights to rebel and to hate Jesus. Do you understand that there's still a part of you which is like Annas and his cronies here, there's still a part of you which hates Jesus. That's why at times you'll not want to read your Bible. That's why at times you'll not want to pray. That's why at times you'll not want to come to church. That's why at times you'll not want to witness or to serve. Why? It's because of that remnant of sin which needs to be conquered by the Spirit. So we have seen so far three things, partial truths, insincere investigations, aggressive opposition, and then finally, we see inconsistent activities in verse 23 and 24. Let's read verse 23 there. Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent them bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. The inconsistency here is that they were offended at Jesus speaking against Annas, the high priest, who actually wasn't even the high priest anymore. But they were offended at Jesus speaking against him that they hit him and later would spit on him and hit him more. Who were they hitting? Who were they spitting upon? The real high priest of God the high priest of the order of Melchizedek who had come to rescue his people. At this point, they hand Jesus over, where according to the other gospel, Jesus is beaten by the religious leaders and their guards. And here we see something which is real about wicked religion. It is so full of inconsistency. And we need to be sure if we are those who hold to the true religion, that we have consistency in our lives, consistency in our faith and in our living. And this consistency happens as we move from doctrine, what we believe, to practice how we live. The problem with these Jews was that their theology was wrong. They had a theology about salvation which was wrong based on works. They had a theology about the high priest, which was wrong, which didn't include Jesus. Their beliefs were wrong, and hence their practices were wrong. And if you take, for example, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, where Paul is seeking to deal with so many inconsistencies in the lives of the Christians in those churches, what he has to do when he speaks about their practices isn't just to condemn their practices, but to take them back to what they should believe. Because if what you believe is right, you're halfway to living in a right manner. For example, 
In 1 Corinthians, he talks about the divisions that were within the church there. People coming behind their favorite preachers in the early chapters of 1 Corinthians. What is Paul's response? He says, you've lost sight of the very nature of the church, which is the body of Christ. So, how can a church be divided? It's like Jesus' body being ripped apart. He takes them back to what they should believe about the church. Or if you go back to the, the roles of men and women in the church, which indeed was causing a lot of problems, he takes them back to what they should believe in God's plan of creation. Or when he talks about the gifts of the Spirit, which were being abused in that church, and everybody was using their gifts to draw attention on themselves, he takes them back to the nature of love and sacrifice in 1 Corinthians 13, and how the purpose of gifts is to love and to build up the fellowship. He takes them back to the very nature of service. So, how he responds to their inconsistencies, their practice, their wrong practice, he takes them back to the principles that should govern their lives. For example, the Lord's Supper. The people came together and they had a great feast. Well, some of them did. Some of them came and had loads of food because they were rich, and others came and had practically no food because they were poor. And then they had the Lord's Supper at the end of this meal together. What does Paul do? He takes them back to the principles of what the Lord's Supper is about. He takes them back to what Jesus had done through His broken body and His shed blood. He takes them back to the theology so that their practice will be right. You see, I think one of the, the problems for many Christians today is we do things because we have always done certain things. Uh, that's very true of in the Presbyterian church. And then if things change, we're not sure if that's right or not. And what happens so often is people who by nature like changes will accept it, and people by nature who don't like changes will not accept it. And that's no way to decide what is right or what is wrong. One of my greatest blessings in life was when I was in my 20s going and spending a summer in Zimbabwe. And I didn't find any Presbyterian churches out there. And church services were very different, very strange. What happened when I came back from there? I came back with 101 questions for my minister. Why do we do this? Why do we do that? And I changed from being a Presbyterian by practice and tradition to becoming a Presbyterian by biblical principle. What we need to do is go back to the principle and then follow it through in our practice. And one of the things we have to ask ourselves so often, by what I am doing, what am I saying about what I believe? In some senses, I'm speaking to the converted, but if people don't have time to come to an evening service on the one Lord's day in the week, what does that say? about what they believe about Jesus on the Lord's day. We have to constantly ask that question, what do my practices say 
about what I believe. Here we see that wicked religion is inconsistent because their theology, what they believe is wrong. Where consistent religion has right belief followed through with right practice. So, what are the marks of this wicked religion? Partial truths, insincere investigations, aggressive opposition, inconsistent activities. Let's be careful because those things can be real in any one of our lives. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth tonight. And Lord, just teach us, particularly, Father, where we need to learn from what we have studied tonight. Show us, Father, where our religion is not pure and true. Show us, Father, where there is inconsistency. Show us where our hearts are closed as we come to your word. Show us where we shut Jesus out. Oh, Father, help us to be humble. Help us to have this living relationship with Christ. Help us to have that attitude of Samuel all those years ago. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.